difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Keith Epps and Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson, our fourth panelist, has left early for Christmas, so we'll just have to discuss her favorite movie of the year without her. <laughs> uh, here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two bright, Colorful, swoon-worthy musicals about the power of young love, but with a bittersweet twist. Genevieve, why don't you rip the Band-Aid off and tell us just what that bittersweet twist is. The twist is, Scott, that sometimes things don't work out. Damn it! Everyone (laughs) seems so perfect together, too. Uh, So tell us about this week's pairing. Well, it's been over half a century since the movie musical has been a regular staple of the American movie-going diet, and it's still particularly rare to see a musical written and choreographed for the screen. And it's even rarer still to encounter one as skillfully wrought as La La Land, director Damien Chazelle's splashy follow-up to Whiplash. La La Land sets the romance between Emma Stone's wannabe actress and Ryan Gosling's wannabe jazz man against a backdrop of Tinseltown at its most romantic. And yet for all the hat tips to old Hollywood favorites like Singing in the Rain and An American in Paris, the film's love story takes a melancholy turn that recalls Jacques Demy's classic 1964 musical The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg has its own romantic backdrop in a coastal town of cobblestone streets lined with charming boutiques and cafes. It also features two young lovers, played by Catherine Deneuve and Nino Castelnuvo, whose plans are upended by fate. And it will also make you cry unless you are a replicant. Scott, are you a replicant? Well, crying shorts my circuitry, Uh, (laughs) so the best I can do is squint when I'm moved. Uh, But I was plenty moved by both La La Land and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which are not only beautifully filmed, performed, and scored, but also have the courage to access deeper truths about love. We expect to feel happy after watching musicals that aren't directed by Lars von Trier, Uh, but these films are emotional experiences that leave you appreciating an ending more complicated than happily ever after. But we're not at the ending here yet on The Next Picture Show. We're at the beginning of our two-part episode, full of optimism about where this podcast will take us. Please wait for us after the break. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is one of my favorite movies, and it's the favorite movie of our own Keith Phipps, whose wife, Stevie, arranged a private screening at the Music Box Theater in Chicago for his 40th birthday. Uh, The three of us were in attendance that night, and I've seen the film many times in my life, first discovering it when it was restored and released in the mid-1990s. And every time I've seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, I've come away with a slightly different feeling about it. 
In his essay for the Criterion edition of the film, my friend Jim Ridley, a brilliant critic for the Nashville scene who passed away last year, encapsulates it beautifully. Jim writes, More than any other film I know, Umbrellas affects people differently at different stages of life. When I first saw it, newly married but still remembering vividly the pang of adolescent crushes, it played as tragedy, the story of a young love snuffed out by war, fate, and economic hardship. Over the years, seen in the light of Demi's other films, it has come to seem more properly an exaltation of life's bittersweet balances and trade-offs, of unexpected triumphs made richer by the dashed hopes that offset them. We've talked often on this show about the personal experiences we bring to movies and how much they do or do not affect our reaction to them. Jim's reaction to The Umbrellas of Cherbourg mirrors mine very closely. I would have been in my mid-twenties when I first saw the restored version in theaters, and I remember being crushed by it. The first of the film's three parts, which takes up half the 90-minute running time, captures the feeling of first love better than any film I've ever seen. It's possible that Guy, the mechanic played by Nino Castelnuovo, has had some experience, but we know that Genevieve, a 16-year-old played by Catherine Deneuve, has not. There's an overwhelming end-of-the-world intensity to their courtship that feels precisely right for two people for whom love is new. Genevieve's mother warns her that she's moving too fast, and not without reason, but it wouldn't be called falling in love if you weren't jumping off the cliff a little. They talk about having children. They talk about their modest but blissful future together. When Guy gets called to war in Algeria, Genevieve promises to wait for him. Je t'aime, je t'aime, je t'aime, what not. Uh, but in the second and third parts of the film, Guy and Genevieve drift apart. The distance between them isn't satisfyingly bridged by letters. Genevieve, who's pregnant with Guy's child, starts listening more to her mother, who convinces her that Roland Cossard, an earnest man of means, will make a good husband and father. Guy returns to Cherbourg with no one waiting for him at the train station. He's bitter and angry that Genevieve is gone, but he finds solace and happiness in Madeline, the kind young woman who's been looking after his godmother. The two get married, have a child of their own, and live in the gas station that Guy has always dreamed about owning. Guy and Genevieve don't see each other again until the very last scene, when Genevieve drives into the gas station on a snowy evening around Christmas. They haven't seen each other, and we haven't seen them together since she was bidding a tearful farewell to him at the train station at the end of part one. The first time I saw The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, a few years after the breakup of my first serious relationship, but many years before I got married, I marveled at the truth of two people who were once so madly in love regarding each other so differently. Like Jim, it struck me as tragic that a love so pure couldn't last. But now, the ending seems like, as Jim wrote, quote, an exaltation of life's bittersweet balances and trade-offs. I have yet another reading of the ending after watching it for this podcast, but the maturity and insight of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg are as indelible to me as Michel Legrand's score, which I haven't even talked about yet. But we'll talk about it and much, much more in just a moment. So, uh, Keith and Genevieve, I guess to start, I mean, what has been your experience with the Umbrellas of Shoreborg, and uh, do you feel your perspective on it has changed uh, over time, as uh, Jim suggests? You know, I think I saw it about the same point in my life as you. Uh, Mid-20s, I think it was re-released in theaters in the 1996. 
I remember the marquee at, at, in Madison, Wisconsin had Cherbourg with an H at the end, as if it were Pittsburgh. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think I recognized that the ending was measured at the time, but it's not really, uh, you know, something I, I necessarily understood. And later on, as, as a married person, you kind of do understand that uh, it's not an unhappy ending. It's not an unambigu- unambiguously happy ending either, but but it, the bittersweetness is its own kind of wonderful feeling in this. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, sort of the bittersweet virgin unhappiness is, is usually, that's, that's, a, that's a comfortable place for me to be in my life, uh, uh, except Static happiness uh, maybe is is not something that we get to experience that much as grownups, but but uh, sort of the wise understanding that, that life has worked out uh, better than perhaps than, than you ever could have dreamed it was, even if, even if all your dreams didn't come true. That's a, it's a good place to be. And, and I mean, this again, I, as I said in the intro, is your favorite film, or it, it, it is? Yeah. And so so how did that come to be? What what are the qualities, I suppose, well, of this film that are so special to you? It, it's emotionally, it's it's so moving. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. I was watching the, the making of documentary on the. Criteria and Blu-ray today, and, and uh, Demi talks about how he wanted to make a movie that made people cry, and he <laughs> made a movie that made people cry. But I also feel like it's so much of what you want from movies here. It's this totally immersive experience where everything is working. The camera movements, the look of it, the beautiful colors, um, the music. I mean, it's just enveloping from the moment you start it. And, and the spell never breaks. I mean, just carries through. There's not a moment in this movie that doesn't work for me. I think every act is wonderful in its own way. The, the bookends, the first and third acts are both pack such an emotional wallop. Uh, it gives me everything I wanted from a movie. You know, it was it was. There's a handful of movies I can point to and say that were just sort of revelatory. And if they didn't change the way I looked at movies, at least sort of explain to me what I wanted when I went into a movie theater. And this is far and away uh, um, uh, at the top of the list for me. Uh, Genevieve, what about you? Uh, well, my first time seeing it was at Keith's birthday, so uh, an undisclosed number of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I retire uh, next week, guys. Old, old man Phipps over here. Um, no, but I mean, I was I was an adult at that point. Um, I was well past the stage that he and Genevieve are when the film begins, so like... I, I was pretty far removed, I think, from the sort of like wide-eyed idealistic love that that first part really encapsulates. And it was something that I was able to appreciate because of all the things Keith is talking about in, in terms of the cinematic aspect of it and just kind of firing on all cylinders as far as what film can do emotionally. But personally, I responded more to the bittersweet ending. Even at that point, the first time I saw it, partially I was primed for it because I I knew Keith's opinion of this film and I kind of had an idea of why he liked it. So I was going into it prepared for that. So perhaps I didn't have the gut punch moment, but I I really, really loved that ending the first time I saw it. And and the second time I saw it, which was in preparation for this podcast, which uh, I watched with my family, which was a, a lovely experience and um, kind of allowed me to appreciate the more uh, classic film elements of it this time around. I'll confess, actually, to not actually watching the whole thing this time. It's, it's, like, the, it's like the bourbon that you leave. It's, it's only there for special occasions, you know? Uh, it's such, it's such, a, such a powerful film. So I uh, watched uh, the supplements around this and, and uh, learned some stuff I didn't know. I, that first part still gets to me. I think there's um, a purity to that feeling that experience teaches you to lose a little bit of this feeling like what you have is is so perfect and great and untarnished by anything. And of course, we can talk about having children. And of course, I'm going to wait for you when, when you're to war. And of course, I'm going to say goodbye to you in the manner that I do at the train station. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you just are so caught up in that. And you and for me, again, speaking personally, it just brought up such a strong memory of feelings that I used to have that I that are really 
in the past you really can't access anymore. You know, when you move on and, and love takes a different form. I guess. Yeah, but movies can get you there. And also, as many times as I've seen this movie, you know, I know where it's going. Maybe even the first time you see this movie, you know, you know where it's going, but they don't know it. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just that, that train scene is just so powerful, but they don't know it. And they're so caught up in the moment. And every time, one of the great moments in movies, period, in my, in my opinion. So what do you make of the setting of this film? It's so memorable. You know, how does it add to the film? And you know, what does it tell you about, I guess, the lives that these characters lead? Well, it explains the necessity for an umbrella store, I guess, <laughs> being a coastal town with weather that changes quickly. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that weather is also a handy metaphor for how emotions can change unexpectedly. It can add instant drama yep. with uh, the, the rain and, and having no rain. <laughs> but um, And it's got kind of a working class feel to it too mm-hmm. even though it's been romanticized and it's in this bright colors well, and it's sure board they filmed there they dressed it up <laughs> obviously a yeah. lot for this but but it's actually shot on location yeah and i mean there there are definitely some like shabby looking alleyways i don't want to say shabby looking because they're it's so like beautifully rendered but like i mean this is a place that's lived in this is you know mm-hmm. old this is not shiny hollywood backlot version of Cherbourg. or if it, if it is it's like the black lots for for west side story or yeah. something where there's there's some some gripe there as well yeah and i think there's also you know an economic aspect to this as well and you know and this is this is where i guess genevieve's mother comes in you know her business is is struggling you know, she certainly doesn't want her daughter to struggle and so she's looking at this relationship she's having with a mechanic askance for multiple reasons one of which is that that she doesn't necessarily see um, him being able to provide for her in the same way that she does this jeweler uh, mm-hmm. Roland Cassard who comes uh, around later so that's a motivating factor but and that's also of course something you don't think about when you're a young person you know you think about oh we're just going to be live this modest lifestyle mm-hmm. he's going to be a mechanic and we'll have this little home and you know it's not it's not going to be much much but we'll have each other and um, you know that's, that's that's a young person's way of thinking. And you, you can't hear your, your parents <laughs> at that age either. And I no. Think, I think Genevieve is, is very much in, in that, that place where she can't hear. And I think that's another shift. I think I think you, I don't know if you necessarily come around to the mom's way of, of thinking as you get older, but you see where she's coming from more. I think you judge her pragmatism a little less. And in the end, she's there. She has she has the plan and it actually works out in a way. We'll in get a, to that. In a way. We'll get to that. We'll get in to a that. way. Yeah, that was the thing yeah. I was kind of puzzling over on this viewing just how much things actually do or do not work out for mm-hmm. her because I think it's a little bit of a different story than it is for him. But. Well, she's in mourning when we see her at the end and she's in mourning for her mother is what we're told. But the fact that she is in black and just such a stark figure, there's hints that she is unhappy beyond the fact that her mother just died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think so too. The fact that and she don't... just leaves her child in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, all, while after remarking about how cold it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that we do not see her husband, we don't see Roland. We we have no way to judge how they are together. It almost wants to take the side of of judging her a little bit much. Uh, a little too much, perhaps. Uh, yeah, what, what, it, do, it does. I think in the, I think there's a little bit of uh, working class romanticism there too. That you know, that maybe she sold out. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I, I think though it's a little bit nuanced in the sense that you know, Roland is by no means a bad guy. No, and uh, he's a perfectly decent guy, it would appear. But then you get her at the wedding, and that's not a happy bride. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's this, it's this very lavish wedding, but 
she doesn't really seem all that uh, happy to be there. And, uh, and maybe that comes through a little bit more at the end, which, whereas Guy gets everything he could possibly want. He's, he's got the Esso station that, that is apparently located in the middle of a snow globe. Uh, and he's got, he's got a child uh, who uh, seems very bright. And things work out for him a little bit more than they do for her, which I, but I don't think necessarily think, think the film is judgmental about it. But mm. uh, but at the same time, not a lot of time passes between when he goes off to war and when she makes the decision to accept Guy's proposal. She's also pregnant. I mean, you know, she's she is pregnant, yeah. but that's that's pretty still pretty fast, right? And it's unclear to me still after having watched this twice, like who is quote unquote at fault as far as the letters are concerned, like who is not writing enough versus whose expectations of letters are too high. And it's, uh, do do you guys have a a take on that? Because I I know there's one line, like one letter in two months or two letters in one month, something like that. Yeah. And he remarks about her, her letters have seen more distance. It's like, she's upset about the quantity of the letters and he's upset about the quality of the letters. (laughs) But I think it is supposed to be a little ambiguous about maybe who is at fault in terms of letting the communication lapse. It's worth noting also that that Roland is from the demi shared universe. I guess uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he's in the the uh, his first feature film called Lola, in which he has his heart broken uh, by the title character by Anouk Ami. So he's already kind of been through what uh, Genevieve and Guy are going through. So if you've seen that film, and it's quite good. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But if, you, if you've seen that film, it brings in a little bit of extra information you might not have if you're just uh, watching this one. And so that really lovely sequence in the second act where he is singing about some past real romantic memory mm-hmm. that is of that relationship. Yeah, it is. And, and uh, I'm sure I'm between the name. It's set in Not, which is where um, Jatami is, is from. And that's where the film was set as well. And that's a really nice sequence too in that you were flashing back to another time and place, uh, but not to any people. It's just a space mm-hmm. that the camera kind of wanders around in while he sings and re- recalls this relationship. Just a lovely piece of filmmaking because you know most of the time, you know, when people are singing, we, are, we in the film we are watching them sing. So to kind of break away from that and go to another place and, and get a sense of who Roland is and what his romantic history is and where he is coming from, it's a really uh, nice way to do it. And, and the thing about the musical in general about about this movie is that. I I think it really creates four pretty rich characters, maybe even five if you want to include Madeline in this, without having the time that it would normally take another film to be able to accomplish what it does. Uh, I think you can talk about these relationships as being complex and full of nuance and complicated feeling, but the film establishes all that so economically. There's just no wasted moments in the film. Yeah, and I think part of that is, is it's an advantage of being a musical where you can kind of take shortcuts to those emotions. Well, and, and, then... and particularly this style of musical right. where it is sunk. I mean, it, it's opera. I mean, opera mm-hmm. is... They, jazz opera, basically. Yeah, yeah. They talk about opera at the beginning about, you know, I, I prefer movies to opera or whatever, Like, but it is specifically called out as a touchstone here. But I think like what it takes from the operatic style is the notes express the emotion, not the words just like the way jetem is is sung and, and the emotion that is behind it and the way the notes are drawn out like that tells you as much as two pages of dialogue could, mm-hmm. you know and that's just kind of the advantage of the style that's being utilized here yeah, and Vernon, who plays the mother, talks about how receiving the screenplay, this, this is so simplistic. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. no, there's nothing to this. It's really 
uh, not a complicated thing at all. I was skeptical about it. And then, you know, when you see it all put together. I mean, most of the best love songs are pretty simple, Mm -hmm. you know, like, or a lot of them, I should say. It reminds me a little bit of one of our old uh, Next Picture Show uh, films, which is, you know, Memento. That is not the movie I was expecting you to call out right now. (laughs) But I mean, just like, like, if if people talk about, you know, if you were to, if you straighten out Memento and you can watch, I guess, uh, I have not done so, but if you, you can watch on the old DVD, a chronological version of memento it's just it's as simple as can be but the way of course that it's he structures it makes it complex and in the sense that somewhat analogous here of um being able to accomplish a lot without doing uh, too much i guess one of the other things i appreciated too about the music you know you have all this dialogue that is sung and, and sometimes it's about things as inconsequential as haggling over the billing at a, a mechanic shop but then, you know, when it does hit you, when you get to a big number, like, I will wait for you. And you don't even, I wouldn't even call it a big number in the sense, like, it's not like a song necessarily. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you hear that, you know, that big sweeping passage in the score, it just, it stands out all the more and just it, it, it delivers kind of that emotional punch that the film is, you know, looking for. I think that's also a function of, of it being sung through like this is, is it nothing against traditional musicals, but the film doesn't stop for musical numbers. Like all of a sudden, you, you know, you're turning up the temperature on the water until you realize mm-hmm. that you're in the middle of a big musical number, you yeah. know? Just having it sung through, I think another benefit is like, you're literally like along for the ride the entire movie. Like, you know, there's the music kind of forms this emotional continuum that you stay on throughout the whole movie you know there's no break to go to like you said a, a big number it's uh it's very effective here I, it probably would not be effective in all musicals but it is here yeah it's it's enchanting i mean it kind of it's, it, a good it, word. it's enchanting and the fact of it is that that when people sing how they feel to each other it's just more powerful than when they talk about how they feel about one another a lot of the time you know going back to what you said a few minutes ago about the nuance of these characters and their relationships how do you guys read the relationship between Genevieve and her mother? Because I, I, I read it differently the second time around, and I'm, I'm curious. I, I think as someone who doesn't want, want I think like with all parents, they don't want their kids to make the same mistakes they did. They want to have a better life for their kids than, than, than they had. Um, and I think it's a little overbearing, but I think she her intentions are good, even if um, she can be a little misguided as to how she uh, implements them. Yeah, that is how I viewed it the first time. This time around, I was like picking up notes of jealousy Mm. toward her daughter um, Mm. that I thought made that relationship and her ending up with Roland a little more interesting. Like there's the the whole bit at the beginning with her having to sell her jewels and saying how she like feels stripped and naked. And there's just something about that character where you get the sense that she is like mourning her her youth or her her lost mm-hmm. beauty or youth whatever you know this that's a pretty standard older woman uh character emotion to have mm-hmm. but in that scene where Roland comes to dinner and and asks Genevieve's mother about marrying her like she's taken aback and I originally took that reaction to just mean basically what she says like oh she's so young but one of the people I was watching it with took it to mean that Genevieve's mother was expecting or was hoping that she would mm. form a relationship with Roland and that he would be her savior. And uh, she's kind of taken aback by how Genevieve has like taken that role from her. And there there are like little instances of her mother kind of like negging her, you know, saying, you know, she's not that pretty mm. and stuff. I'd, I'd honestly have to go back and watch it really with that in mind. But I think that is an interesting reading of that relationship. I don't think her intentions are quite are as pure as i want the best for my daughter right because she she starts roland comes onto the scene because she 
is desperate and needs money and her her business is failing you know and so all of that kind of gets mixed up with you know whatever it is best for her daughter on top of you know what what you said which seems perfectly valid about yeah. her sense of lost youth or yeah. um, jealousy jealousy i mean exactly. i mean that's like not a particularly uncommon mother-daughter relationship to to plum in movies sort of the the jealousy of the older mother toward the the younger daughter. I don't think it's either or either. Yeah, I think right. it's, those feelings are, can, can overlap pretty easily. Yeah, we can maybe talk about Madeline just a little bit. How do you feel about her compared to Roland? And does the film feel use of the word judgmental? Does the film feel that Guy is entitled to the bitterness that he feels about Genevieve not waiting for him to come back? Well, I think he's punished for that bitterness in the before he marries Madeline that we see him kind of lose it he loses his job he's not shaving you know and he spends a night with a prostitute who named Jenny very close to Genevieve (laughs) brunette but you know I, I think there's definitely an intentional echo happening there and while he is with this prostitute like wallowing in that bitterness his godmother dies you know Mm -hmm. and i think that is uh, there's definitely a trope of being punished for sex in in films and i think like that is definitely what is happening there and so i think madeline appearing at that moment is kind of a redemption moment for him Mm -hmm. that's how i rate it yeah she she's certainly there for him at at the point where his character needs him not necessarily in a way that Mm -hmm. makes sense for her own character as much as she's defined i mean not a knock on the film but but uh, i mean you can only do so much yeah Uh, um, it's a short film it is a short film yeah Yeah, one thing i actually did want to mention about the setting we 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 went over before but i had forgotten about it until now is is one of the things i love about the movie is how it returns to the same spaces in a different context mm-hmm. in wonderful ways i mean the the prominent example being the train station in which she bids him farewell he returns to it and of course it's pouring and nobody's there for him there's a scene in the cafe when he comes back where he's by himself and he looks straight across and and there is the the table that they sat in where they were sort of you know declaring their undying love for each other um you know there's the scene the same dock area where where Guy and Genevieve are talking about their future and about having children is the same place where she goes with Roland and has the same conversation. Um, so all these settings, they have different meanings. They take on different meanings as the film gives them new contexts, I guess. I have another one. He goes back to the umbrella shop, which is no longer the umbrella shop. It's being turned into a laundrette. And when we see the umbrella shop, it is the most colorful place in the world. And when he returns and it's becoming a laundrette, it is white. There is no color to be seen in that shop at all. Is this ultimately a movie about diversifying the stock of your store (laughs) and not specializing in (laughs) two nation area? I mean, if you can't make an umbrella store work in Cherbourg, where can you make an umbrella shop work? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It reminded me a little bit of In the Mood for Love, like sort of the scene where he returns to the apartment. and, Mm -hmm. and, And I think that's... That is very much a um, you know, the cliche. You can't go home again, but you know, it's true. You know, you go back, and and the place you were you grew up in is not the place you grew up in anymore. I think there's a little bit of that too, especially if you have powerful emotional experiences tied to a place, and you go back, and and whoever you had those with, or the people that were there before, are, are gone. It's it, the place can seem kind of haunted and distant. <laughs> That's Manchester by the sea, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, if you want to talk about that? It was just that returning and, and sure. everything looking different uh, mm-hmm. uh, to you. I mean, obviously the the level of trauma 
trauma is significantly higher in that movie. But uh, but I think the movie is very cl- this the umbrella is very smart about the way it uses and then reuses these same spaces. Well, speaking of trauma, I mean, he goes to war. You know, he he returns with a limp. Like you know, he presumably had some traumatic experiences while he was away. And I think it's fair to say that beyond Genevieve not being there, perhaps being at war and what he saw at war kind of informs how he is seeing this town when he returns. And this is not an overtly political film, but you can't take them out. I mean, this is the war in Algeria, which is just freshly concluded. And, and like, this is a movie about how, you know, the bittersweet and young love doesn't always work out and you find him more mature on her own. But it's also a film about war messes things up for people. Yeah. War takes them away and whatever course their relationship might have run is completely split in two by him being called to fight. Right. And and even in the scenario in which she does wait for him, does he come back? A changed, yeah, such a changed person that they can't that they, that relationship can't work. I mean, has he now reached a stage where Madeline is more appropriate for who he is? Maybe she has uh, a depth. I mean, she's a caretaker. You know, she allows him to have the life that he envisioned for himself with Genevieve, but. Madeline will work in a pinch. <laughs> know. She, at least she she recognizes that. It's like, are you really, you know, am I just kind of... Uh... I mean, you're not going to convince me that Genevieve's are not superior, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg was a hit in France, but it took flack for some critics at home and abroad uh, because Demi wasn't really part of the French New Wave that was radicalizing cinema at the time. Uh, the film was dismissed often as a curio, sort of odd and silly. Is there something to the musical form itself that makes it difficult for us to accept them as substantive? I mean, is that is there just a reaction to this genre that maybe takes a l- us a little more time to kind of see these films as, as being worth what they are? Then? Well, I mean, there's the specifics of the time, too. This was not someone who was going to completely overturn the traditional quality. Yeah. Uh, filmmaking in France... I mean, he was very friendly, obviously, with the French New Wave people. And, and I think he's kind of recognized now as a figure of the French New Wave. And, and I think Lola is it's a lot more New Wavey than this. But I mean, this is very much as, as innovative as it is. It's also very much rooted in its traditional musicals. Yeah, he's, he's kind of neither here nor there in some ways. Yeah, he was kind of between worlds. When did he marry Agnes Varda? When did that happen? They were married at this point, I believe. And, and interestingly, she was a single mother, too, so that that found its way in, into the film. Hmm. And not to keep going back to the making of, but on the making of, she talks about how uh, he died in 1990. Uh, Varda is still still alive. We actually just saw her last year at the Music Box here. Yeah, was, she's she's unbelievable. She's so awesome. She's such an awesome interviewer. She's like, yeah, I used to think that maybe uh, uh, this is inspired by some tragic lost love that uh, he experienced but no i don't think so oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's she's remarkable i hope she lives to be 150 one other thing too about it the appreciation of this film and to me in general um you know jim ridley in that essay he's just he's such a great writer and i have to mention i have to bring this up because it's so beautifully phrased and i I, i'll never forget it he talks about how demi's films were kind of disrespected because of the quote the aesthetic abattoir of lop and chop vhs is the way he described (laughs) it uh which is just just a beautiful jim ridley phrase And, and that's true i think if you have films like Demis that are full of color and life. Those are not films that are necessarily going to be well treated and poorly transferred VHS copies. Uh, yeah, as, as much as I was happy to grow up in, in the video store era, I, I think of films that just 
literally made no sense uh, in Pan and Scan. Like, first time I tried to watch a Sergio Leone movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, how do we do it? I know. And I'm, I'm glad. I, I, the first time seeing this for me was, was on the big screen. <laughs> I have a, we're just basically just completely diverging here, but I have this memory of trying to see Once Upon a Time in the West for the first time because it was something that you could not see anywhere. And I was super excited, and it was on cable, and I taped it or something like that. And I started watching it, and it was a letterbox, and I was really excited mm-hmm. about it. And, uh, you know, you go through that, that opening credit sequence, which is one of my favorite sequences ever. And then the credits end, and you cut, and then it goes to pan and scan. And I can, re- I can remember just being this, <laughs> giving some sort of horrible audio, audible response to that. <laughs> and my mother just laughing Did, at me. Was, she was, was just, it? It was like, it was like <laughs> whatever the, whatever the uh, uh, bellicose Scott, version of Scott of, Tobias, noise of disgust. Me as like a 17-year-old going, blah. Uh, and my mom just laughing at me. She's just like... Rubbing you in my face, which uh, which is not not the right thing to do. Come on, but, Scott's uh, mom. Come on, <laughs> she's she's uh, she's better now. She she wouldn't laugh at me, but now you get a nice Criterion box set, and you you can appreciate him as being an artist on a level with with the new wave directors who of, of which that scene he was kind of in between worlds. So uh, um, it's nice that this film you know has been accepted and embraced for you know the masterpiece that I think it it plainly is. But before we wrap up I kind of wanted to ask the two of you if you have any favorite moments from the film or, or things that stood out for you this time. I was happy in the first scene. I love the singing of the most mundane interactions at that that the, at the, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the mechanics the mechanics uh, just like oh okay this is this is a movie this is definitely a different kind of movie and and I I've, I've said before I mean the ending is is so amazing and the mm-hmm. uh, train station scene is so just breathtaking Um, yeah yeah. i think that the train station is probably the the shot that sticks with me most just the the pulling away and watching genevieve kind of disappear into the distance but honestly when i think of this film the first thing that pops in my mind is wallpaper just the (laughs) the wallpaper (laughs) i mean this is a colorful movie which obviously i love oh and let me back up also just opening credits the overhead shot of the crisscrossing umbrellas it's just Mm -hmm. it's such a lovely opening uh card to the movie but um yeah after watching this movie i really want to just wallpaper my whole house and dress to match the wallpaper because it's my favorite part <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I like that yeah that opening is really cool too because it's one of the few bits of like choreography in the film yeah. I mean, the film is choreographed in the in the movement there there's, the, there's I, no I dancing like, though i like the movement there's no dancing it's just everyone moves carries themselves gracefully and i think that's kind mm-hmm. of kind of enough uh for the film but uh, it's blocking not choreography <laughs> it is it's, it becomes choreography if you, you can move that nicely but uh yeah i, mean, I think it's just, i'm still in, in love with the big emotional moments in the film from from the moment he informs genevieve that he's going into the service through to the train station that stretch of film and then of course the end of the uh, movie is just so bittersweet and just I just have never experienced anything like that quite what it evokes I think the film is just wise about love in a way that almost no film I've seen is that it just it understands the different forms that it can take and it's in- incredible to to return to it and have that evoked you know it, it's also so wonderful to see you know how it changes and, and becomes something else at the at the end of the film and, and how that makes you feel and and uh you know how enriching that can be to to have this dream really of his be be realized i mean it's a it's a sadder scene than i acknowledged or realized for genevieve who i think you could argue has a less happy ending than gee certainly a less happy ending than, than, than gee how much less happy we don't really know but no it becomes a film from his perspective in the final moments and in a way that it hasn't been up till then. It's, 
Yeah, which is kind of a strange choice, isn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, because she's kind of the one we follow for the most part. Um, no, I mean, for, from the time he returns from war, I mean, we're pretty solidly in his mm-hmm. perspective. Like, we don't see Genevieve once she's married until that last scene. Like, True. she's absent for the film for, I'd say, close to a third of it. Yeah, maybe, yeah, I guess I guess you're right, and and of course he's. I mean, her presence hangs heavy over the film, you know, and, but... and then of course he's absent for the second yeah. act, and and uh, he comes back, and she's not there waiting for him. But anyway, so surprising no one, Scott likes the saddest parts of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I, I I just I love to just kind of marinate in sad stuff. That's uh, that's my thing. I never understood that. I, it'd be my my own wife resists films that have some sadness or a lot of sad, sadness to them, and to me, it's just like bring it on just like the sadder a film can make me the more like genuine emotion it can can draw out like i'm gonna be all about that film well there's more sadness on the horizon in our next episode so (laughs) (laughs) okay well uh we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode now it's time for feedback we thought we were through with arrival but Arrival isn't through with our listeners. We continue to get thoughtful emails pouring over the twists and turns of the film, and we have another one to share from a listener who was let down by the big reveal. Keith, do you want to take this one for us? Sure. I, I feel like Arri- Arrival is going to be the next Inception, where it's going to be chewed over by the internet for, for a while. Uh, so, okay, so Blake writes, Like Tasha and Genevieve, I enjoyed Arrival overall, but felt the emotional climax to be inert. I appreciate what the film aimed for with its ambitious elliptical structure, but in order to make the surprise of the prologue as epilogue work, you have to undermine the emotional terrain the film built up beforehand. While I can understand that the heptapod's language allows Louise to experience all time at once, she has had no contact with the aliens at the beginning, which makes the emotional recess of her loss feel doubly duplicitous. Before the reveal, I found Arrival to have expertly crafted the emotional and intellectual spheres of the film and intertwined them with the visuals. The black monolith of the alien ship is shot in relief of Louise in multiple scenes. Its inscrutable shape in the background suggests a loss in her past, or so we would assume. It is shot this way merely to suggest this. The film constructs emotional capital with the sole errand of defaulting on it. That's the twist. I think there's some merit in how the story invites us to examine the structure of cinematic language by subverting our reliance on it. In this way, we can adopt Louise's and ultimately the movie's nonlinear perspective of time and tragedy. I understand this intellectually in the context of the benefits of the alien language and the larger message, but the fate of the child can no longer strike me, and Louise's future choices lost their weight. Are we to assume the film was always to be interpreted in the heptapod's language, even though we necessarily read it linearly? Hearing from others who have read the story and saw the movie, the story perhaps ironically works better in the medium it was originally fashioned in, as text. I really wish one of us had read the story. I had it out from the library, and then it was overdue. I had to return it. <laughs> That's a, we should have done. A, we should do like a separate, you know, mini podcast about that whole uh, experience, Keith, of taking it out from the library and not reading it, and then having it be overdue. But I think I read it in some in some point in the future. I read yeah. it, so I felt like I was kind of reacting. Okay, so to tell it. so tell us what he means then. <laughs> Ask your future self. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this is one of those movies where. Every time people say they weren't moved by it, they didn't get to them, like, ah, I can't wait to tell you. I just yeah. think this movie just, just sucks for you. Just, yeah, just movie just was like an apple core and just removing the center of my being for the two hours <laughs> it was it was running. And I think, but I think he's right, though. I think you do kind of have to. Uh, I, I think it is to be read in, in heptapodies or whatever. I think mm-hmm. it is, is a film that's richer if, if you, if you, kind of uh, um, let it work it that way, where it's kind of uh, all, all experiences at once. I don't know. I think in some ways I 
knew there, I knew there was a twist when I saw this movie. I said this in the episode itself. I knew there was something. I figured it out fairly early. And once I figured out what was going on, that's when it really kicked in for me. So maybe the ideal way to see this is, is to, to have someone whisper it in your ear halfway through or something. If you're not figuring it out for yourself, I'm not sure. I, it, it works. It works for me. Yeah. I mean, sorry, Blake. I think I said this on the episode. Like I, I wish that I felt the emotional connection you guys felt to this film because I mean, I always want to like a, a film as much as possible. And when I don't, it makes me sad. But I, I like what Blake says in his letter about the film constructing emotional capital with the sole errand of defaulting on it. Very I think, well yes, I think that's a very good uh, expression of what I was fumbling toward in that episode of uh, kind of feeling that the movie tricked me, you know, <laughs> and, and, and setting up a, an emotional scenario that it ended up kind of pulling out from under you. So I think that's a just kind of a good expression of maybe the underlying frustration myself and I, apparently uh, many other people felt with the, the twist. Just as a side note, I, I don't like it when our readers writing is this kind of feeling <laughs> like it, it kind of is getting in my territory a little bit. And I, I'm suspicious of it, but Durr, don't like that's, what, that's, that's yeah. the level. That's the level we want. From yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, we want it like uh, air, things that we can kind of go in and copy edit and then present. Um, but um, I don't. That's not true. Keep being smart. Keep sending us. Smart I letters. know. I know. You know, this is an ironic tone. I'm trying to say here, um, but my issue i I, i'm not um someone who gets too hung up or try not to get too hung up on on plot and 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 logic and everything kind of making sense if it makes emotional sense and and if i kind of key into the intentionality of it and and the feeling of it that's fine for me i i if i feel like you know i i just i'm just not the type to see it as a cheat that maybe we're supposed to interpret the film in the deposit language i mean that's not the type of thing that becomes a sticking point for me when i watch a film like this but uh, that's just my point of view i think for others maybe not so much so moving on to our last show on mulan and moana a listener weighs in on the thorny issue of disney's animal sidekicks hey hey genevieve hey hey uh, you take this one. <laughs> sure. Anthony Pizzo writes, You all spoke a little bit about the changing nature of Disney animal sidekicks, and I think I have more to add. Not only has Disney been moving away from talking animal sidekicks, but in each animated musical since Tangled, they have deliberately supplanted and subverted the dominant animal sidekick of the previous film. In Frozen, Hans's horse is a dead ringer for Maximus, both in design and temperament. He's intelligent, severe, and feels superior to the humans who ride him. However, he is quickly abandoned, or rather abandons Anna, and we are given over to Sven, a big dopey dog of a reindeer who has most of his humanistic characteristics projected onto him by Kristoff. Then in Moana, we have the dog-like pig Pua, who is literally left behind in favor of Hey Hey, a fairly authentic chicken. How appropriate for a movie so concerned with themes of identity. I like that... Uh... <laughs> He, uh, he interprets his hey hey as being authentic. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's, he, yep, yep, he, is, he, hey hey is who he is. Uh, I mean, I think that's a interesting observation. It's uh, only tracks over a, a handful of films, so you know, I I don't know if it's a pattern or a coincidence, but I, I do think there is something to the idea of a secondary sidekick taking over for the figure you would presume to be the the main sidekick, particularly in more recent uh, Disney films. It's more to merchandise that way, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You oh, always I know. I, I've, I've been to Toys R Us this season, everybody. <laughs> There's lots of Moana stuff. You know, in all, in all of these cases, I think they've just figured it out a little bit. There's been a, more of an evolution, uh, a more of a limited but effective comic role for these sidekicks they're not as 
is is dominant. We don't get too many uh, bit, bits of business. And I really like the pig. I, as I said <laughs> in the previous show, and would wanted to see more of the pig, but but uh, not not a really good seafaring pig. <laughs> well, I, th- I think back to something like Little Mermaid, where you had three separate sidekicks who are all pretty equally weighted. You had mm-hmm. uh, Flounder, Sebastian, and Scuttle, right? Scuttle's the bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sidekicks are kind of like what you think of when you think of the Little Mermaid, or at least it's what I think of. Like they do kind of overtake that film to a certain extent. So I think, especially Moana, there's a really good balance of sidekicks. I mean, I guess you can interpret Maui as a sidekick, but he's more of kind of like a a co-protagonist in a way. He's a demigod. He lives and and learns over the course of the film. Yeah, yeah, he has an arc. So. I don't know. Disney's doing, doing good things with sidekicks. Keep yeah, it up. Yeah. Don't keep adding them. <laughs> we don't need like four sidekicks in the next movie. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. So as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response at a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in La La Land, which also features a love so transcendently beautiful that it's certain to last forever, right? Right. No? Oh. <laughs> but at least we get a happy ending this time, right? Mm. Maybe? Kind of? <laughs> uh, we'll talk it over on the other half of this podcast. Look for that later in the week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be available for tearful farewells at the Amtrak station should you need them. Mm-hmm.